Hi everyone, my name's Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at Common Ground and it's fantastic to be with you today. And I get to continue in our Mark series. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at Jesus being transfigured, uh, where he reveals some of his glory to a few of his disciples. We've seen him tell Peter to get behind him and basically called him Satan. We've we've been on this journey in this little bit through the uh, Mark chapter 9. And this morning we're going to be looking, or today we're going to be looking at this idea of greatness and what does it mean to be great and what does it mean to desire desire greatness. And I think this is something that's incredibly relevant for, for all of us, because in some ways we are all drawn to great things or glorious things. I think about sporting matches or World Cups where there's this leaning in and a desire to see your team win. And when they do, there's that sense of greatness, that t- sense of um, uh, victory is amazing, that sense of glory in victory. I think of a musician that we get to watch who's honed their skills for decades of their life and plays a great piece of music and how that can create goosebumps on us when, when it's done well and we just have this incredible experience of something that is great and beautiful. I think of the greatness of nature and some of the views and things that you can behold in nature from a lion making a kill through to big vistas. These are things that are great and, and our hearts and our souls seem to be drawn towards things that are great. That's why stadiums are filled. That's why venues are filled with people time and time again, because we're drawn towards significant things, things that are great, things that are glorious to behold, things that are good to to look at. But we don't just have a relationship to greatness in terms of we love to watch it, we love to see it, we love to see heroes and sporting heroes and musicians reach the pinnacle of of their, their ability. We also desire in many ways to be great. There's some longing in us to, to have lives of significance and meaning. And so often we, we see significance and meaning in the things that we do, the things that we achieve. And I mean, there's a spectrum here from the, the, the kind of more gentle form of desiring greatness, which is something along the lines of, of affirmation. When we do something well, when we do something that is good, or, or we think we've achieved something of significance, we love it when people say, well done, that was amazing. And we definitely have this heart or need for approval, affirmation of things that we've done well. But then this can be taken to the absolute extreme, to, to um, where, where we we don't feel that our lives can have meaning or our lives have significance or purpose if we haven't achieved something phenomenal or great, haven't invented something, haven't discovered something or haven't achieved something that no one else has achieved. I've got an example of this from the movie Chariots of Fire, which uh, is a movie about British Olympians winning multiple races in the Olympics. And you've got Harold Abrams, who, who's going to run the 100 meters. And he says this just before running, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Here's a man who's, who's honed his skill, run many, many hours, done sprint after sprint. And he stands at the starting line to the 100 meter race at the Olympics. And he says, in these 10 seconds, I justify the reason that I live. And that's the other side of the extreme, that, that we don't feel that our lives are meaningful or, or, or can have any meaning unless we achieve something significant, unless we find ourselves immortalized in history as one of the great humans of history. And that's kind of the spectrum. But in some ways, whether it's just simple affirmation, a few likes on Facebook or a few likes on your Instagram post, all the way to needing to be immortalized in history, we all have some desire to be great or to to know that the great things we have done have been acknowledged. 
And so as we get to today's text, we're going to be looking at this idea of greatness. And the words of Jesus in this text are not new to us. If you're here investigating the claims of Christ, they might be new to you, but they might even be words that you've heard as Jesus talks about being the last and serving others. And and in reality, these words aren't hard to hear, but they're incredibly hard to grasp. And that's a large part of what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to get us to understand and grasp what he's trying to say about greatness. And I think if we understand and grasp what Jesus has to say, we will experience a flourishing in our lives and in this community and in this city flow out from us if we understand what it means to walk the true path to greatness. You see, that's what Jesus is trying to do in this text. He's trying to show us the way to greatness. I'm going to read the text and then we're going to get started. So Mark 9 verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Father, as we unpack your words today, I pray that you would be with us. And I I ask God that you would help us not to just hear your words, but to grasp them, to understand the implications of them in such a way that our lives are transformed. Father, would we see the true path to greatness and understand what it is you want us to understand today. Help us, we pray, Father. We love you, we trust you, we rest in you. Amen. Let's look at verse 30 and we're going to start to understand that what's going on here and actually has been going on for most of this chapter 9 is that the disciples are missing the path to greatness. Verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples. I love the cadence of this verse. What's, what's happening here is that the, the disciples have taken a few knocks. They've, they've been bumped around a bit. They've had a bit of a rough time as Peter's been basically called Satan and told to get behind Jesus to um, the disciples saying ridiculous things as Jesus reveals some of his glory on the transfiguration to when they come back down the mountain and they can't cast out a demon and they're trying to figure out why is this not working and why does it work for Jesus? And they, they're feeling a bit bruised and battered and they've taken a few bumps. And the, the reason is that they're not understanding something about Jesus. They're not grasping what Jesus has been trying to teach them over the, these incidences, over these moments, pretty much since the end of chapter 8 to now. Jesus has been saying some stuff to them that they might be hearing, but they're not understanding and not grasping. And so what Jesus does is he says, he takes them out of the crowd and he says, it says there that he wanted to walk alone with his disciples to teach them. And so as they continue on to Jerusalem, Jesus removes them from the crowd. He gets his 12 round him and he turns that path, that dusty road towards Jerusalem into a classroom. 
He goes, guys, you're really not getting what I'm trying to teach you. So this last little leg towards Jerusalem, it's going to be a classroom and we're going to do some revision lessons so that I can hopefully help you understand what is going on. And he, he doesn't teach them anything new. He doesn't say anything new. He just goes over again what he's been trying to say to them all this time. Verse 31, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. What's going on here is that Jesus is speaking about it. Guys, I've been trying to tell you, I've been trying to teach you, and it's captured in a phrase here, but he would have been unpacking the realities and the nuance of this as he walked this road with his disciples. And he would have been saying, guys, I have to be betrayed. I have to be falsely accused and I'm, I have to lay down my life and I'm going to hang on a cross and in three days I'm going to be raised in power. And he's trying to explain this to them. But the reality is they had no category of understanding or concept of understanding that their Messiah would be a suffering servant. And they're stuck, stuck in this thinking of Jesus as the conquering political hero who would liberate them from the Roman occupation and would be the king of Israel finally returned. And that's, that's their way of thinking. That's their frame of reference. And they're really struggling to grasp what Jesus is saying. I'm pretty sure they understood what he was saying, the words he was saying. I'm sure they understood what it meant to be betrayed. I'm sure they understood what it meant that um, he would be falsely accused and what it meant that he would be killed. I'm, I'm sure they understood the words, but they couldn't understand the implications. They didn't have categories for seeing or viewing Jesus in that way. They may have stumbled over the resurrection idea because that is quite unique. And they would have believed in the resurrection that it would take place at end times and all God's people would be raised in victory. But they were struggling to comprehend the resurrection of Jesus in the, in the immediate. And so they, they're grappling with these things and they don't have categories for understanding what Jesus is trying to say. And at this point, what they should have done is asked him, but they're absolutely terrified to ask Jesus for clarity. So, to help us understand why they're in this position, I often make the joke that I am married to my worst fear, a high school math teacher. My, my wife, Laura, is amazing at math. She's really good at it. And I'm not so good at it. So if you put me in a math class, I'm already shaking. But you put me in a revision math class where basically what's happened is the content has been taught, it's been tested, and the class is not doing well. So the teacher goes, guys, we need to go over revision. And that's what's happening here. The content's been taught. They're not passing the tests. And now they need to go over some revision. And you're sitting in that class and you're looking at the board and the teacher's going over stuff that you've learned and you've gone through and, and you're going, flip, I still don't understand. But the problem is you don't want to ask because you've just seen your mate over there, Peter, get roasted and called Satan by Jesus and say, get behind me. So you're sitting there absolutely terrified to ask any questions because you don't understand and you don't want to be Peter. And that's what's going on in this moment. So as Jesus is walking this road, trying to, to um, help them grasp in this revision lesson what it is that he has come to do and achieve, who he is and what he's about, they're really struggling to grasp it. And they're all too terrified to ask for clarity. But in this moment, can I put it to us that that is probably the most important question they could have asked Jesus. I think he would have been patient with them. If they just stopped and paused in that moment and said, Jesus, what you're saying we can hear, but we're not grasping. Please, would you help us understand? 
please would you make sense of who you are and what you're doing in this world? And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, could I put it to you that that is the most important question you could ask of anyone? Who is Jesus? What is he about? And what did he achieve in this world? And I would really encourage you to ask that of Jesus, even if you, you're not sure where you stand in relationship to him, to just pray a simple prayer. Father, just say, Jesus, I, I've heard some stuff about you and I don't fully understand it. Would you help me to grasp what you're about, who you are and what you've done in this world? It's the most important question anyone can ask and anyone can answer. But as we carry on in this story and carry on in this narrative, it's going to become clear that the problem with them not grasping what Jesus is saying is actually because they don't want to grasp what Jesus is saying. You see, we're going to see that they're actually grasping for greatness. That's what they truly want. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? but they kept silent. So here's another universal reality about the classroom. So what the teacher is teaching and what the class is whispering about and passing notes about is not the same thing. There are two conversations currently happening in this classroom. And when they get to Capernaum, they, they arrive in someone's house and, and Jesus turns to them and he calls them out. He's like, what were you two talking about? And what was that note that you passed across there? And in that moment, none of them want to answer. They're all too ashamed because they know that they haven't been listening to what the teacher's been saying and they've been having their own conversation. And this is what they were talking about, verse 34. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love this moment. I think sometimes we can think of the disciples as these people that Jesus picked because of their amazing ability. And when Jesus picked them, suddenly they were perfect and holy and they were worthy of Jesus and they walked this perfect journey with him. And here in this moment, we see their humanity. We see how human they are. We see how much they are like you and me. They're literally arguing about who is the greatest among them, who is first, who is number one, who's going to be the right-hand person of Jesus. And you can understand how they got there because you've got the transfiguration where Jesus picked three of his disciples and said, come with me up the mountain and glorious things happen up there. You can imagine them getting down, back down the mountain and the guy's going, what happened? They're like, whoa, it was so amazing. What happened? Oh, wait, wait, Jesus said we couldn't tell, but man, it was amazing. And you can just see the environment start to get a bit toxic as, as three seem to have been set apart and they're going no 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 Jesus is going to be the conquering hero he's going to be a political leader he's going to liberate us from Roman um, empire he's going to have influence and status and power and and whoever's his right hand man he they're going to have ultimate power in Israel alongside Jesus and so they start grappling you've got the three going well we're probably one of one of us is probably going to be number one and the other the rest of them going no 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 it's going to be us and you can just see how this has descended literally into playground ridiculous childishness as they grapple with who will be the greatest and they start grumbling and jostling for position and authority and power amongst themselves So we can see how, how they got there. It seems so childish, but I know that I have this in my heart. I mean, many times in my life that I've jostled for position, authority, and influence and power. And at, at behind this, 
behind this ability, how is it that Jesus could be talking about his suffering and talking about his journey towards a cross and talking about laying down his life and the disciples are still going on about who's the greatest, who's going to be alongside Jesus. How is it that they still think that Jesus is about political endeavor and liberation of them in the immediate? How, how is this disconnect happening? And I said it before, it's because they don't actually want to grasp what Jesus is saying. They don't want to hear the words of Jesus in such a way that it changes the way that they view the world and the way that they live their lives. You see, they, they don't have categories for a suffering Messiah and the kingdom of God not being the same as the kingdom of men because they don't want the kingdom of God to be different. They want the kingdom of God. They want Jesus to be a political savior. They want Jesus to be a political figure who's going to take, liberate them from the Roman Empire so that they can gain power. They don't want to hear Jesus talking about a kingdom that's different. They don't want to hear Jesus say that he's going to suffer and die because that doesn't align to their agenda. It doesn't align to their dreams. It doesn't align to their wants. It doesn't align to the plan that they have for their life. It doesn't align to their strategy for gaining status, glory, and influence. And if everything that Jesus is saying is true, then their dreams die. And their ability to gain power and influence in their lifetime as, as leaders of Israel die with it. And so there is something in their hearts that is actually opposed to the words of Jesus. You see, one of the greatest reasons why we don't grasp the words of Jesus, why we fail to hear the words of Jesus in such a way that they change our lives and change the way we live, is because we don't want to hear them because they go against our dreams, our desires for our own lives. And this is due to our broken relationship with God. Is often a seeming disconnect between the ways of God and the ways of people. And that's because right at the fall, when we rebelled against God, that, that was at the center of it. I want to be independent from you, God. I don't want to surrender to your authority. I don't want to surrender to your goodness and, 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 and be in life-giving relationship with you. I want to be autonomous. I want to be the great one. And I refuse to see your greatness. That was at the center of the fall. And since that moment, our hearts have been misaligned with the heart of God. And we find ourselves bumping up against him and, and his ways and his agenda don't align to our ways and our agenda. And if you're here looking into the claims of Christ, that's at the center of the problem. Is that we're not aligned to the ways of God. Our hearts are disconnected from him. And for you, it's, it's about engaging and asking Jesus and this community and going on a journey of answering that question, who is Jesus, what has he done, and what is he about? And allowing him to realign your heart, realign your soul in such a way that the ways of the kingdom become normal and the ways of the world seem disconnected. And for those of us who are Christ followers, so often the bumps and bruises that we experience in our life and faith come from a misalignment of truth. Where we're trying to hijack Jesus 
and make him about our dreams, our purposes, and a means to us achieving greatness rather than us aligning ourselves to his dreams, purposes, and mission and living for his greatness. See, sometimes we try to live in relationship with Jesus, which just isn't compatible. We're just not living in truth. We're refusing to hear what it is that Jesus is saying to us and what it is that Jesus is calling us to. My analogy is Layla loves to play with puzzles at the moment, but she has these moments where she'll grab a piece. She's getting frustrated because she can't find a piece that fits and she'll grab a piece and she'll try and shove it in the puzzle. And she'll just keep trying to shove it in the puzzle. And she'll say to me, Dad, it's not fitting, it's not fitting, it's not going in, it's broken, it's broken, it's not working. And she'll get frustrated to the point of tears. I think sometimes as Christ follows, we grab puzzle pieces and things in our faith and ways of thinking about our lives and our dreams that are so misaligned to the one that we follow, Jesus. And we're trying to shove these puzzle pieces in and we're wondering why we're getting so bruised and battered and confused and finding it so hard. And, and what, what he's saying to us is it doesn't fit. You're trying, it's a mismatch of truth. You need to find the piece that fits and put it there. You need to align yourself to my ways. And in this moment, we see a massive misalignment between their hearts and their agenda and the heart of Jesus and his agenda. And it's exposed in this moment. And you would expect in this moment, like any good teacher, where they've been teaching and it's a revision class and they've done their best to bring the class up to speed and they're talking about something completely unrelated, just showing how disinterested they are in what the real message is about, that the teacher would send them out of the class. That's what you'd expect. And you'd expect in this moment for Jesus to go, guys, I'm actually done. I'm going to lay down my life for you, but I'm done. You guys just don't get it. You're jostling for position and authority and influence when I'm talking about laying down my life and dying for you. And he could have just said, I'm out, you're out. Get out the house, get out the class. But that's not the way of Jesus. He actually goes on to very gently and clearly show them what receiving greatness actually means and what it actually looks like. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the twelve. I love this. Again, the cadence of these verses. So at the beginning of, the, of, the, of the, this verse, we see Jesus say, let's go for a walk. Come walk with me. There's some stuff you're not getting. Let's start a walk too. And, and so often in life, when we're feeling bumped and bruised and confused about life and faith, the solution is to not grasp and try to do things, do more things and gain control and make sure that we can control situations. Actually, it's to slow down and go at the cadence and pace of Jesus to go and walk with him and let him teach you and guide you. And so the disciples have gone from the crowds to walking a path towards Jerusalem with Jesus and a lovely cadence. And then they arrive in a house and in this moment where, they, where they're really exposed, Jesus slows it down even more. And he says to them, come sit with me. And then the lovely intimate space of their teacher sitting and then probably sitting around him. He goes, I need to teach you some stuff. I want to teach you what it means to receive greatness. And he sat down and called the 12. And he goes on to say this, verse 35. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He couldn't be clearer. 
He's trying to be so clear with them. He's like, guys, I really want you to get this. If anyone would be first, that is, if anyone would be great. He asks, he's asking them the question, do you seek greatness? Well, then I'll teach you the path to greatness. And he goes on to say, he must be, or they must be, the last of all and servant of all. Very simple. You want greatness? Well, then you must be the last of all and servant of all. Again, words that are easy to hear and very difficult to grasp. And so Jesus patiently goes on to bring them an analogy in verse 36 to help them grasp what he's saying. And he took a child and put him in his midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. I love that. We really need to put ourselves in, in this room. It's a, it's a room in a small house. The disciples are sitting around Jesus. Jesus gets up and he goes, bring me a child. Someone bring me a child. And I don't know if there was a child upstairs or one outside that someone runs off for one part of the family, but someone brings a child to Jesus, probably around three years old. And he puts him in front of them and he picks up this child. I love that. Picture Jesus holding a little three-year-old kid in front of his disciples as they've been so exposed. Their hearts have been so exposed. And he brings a child before them. And this is Jesus, our Savior, holding a child. And he says to them, look at this child. And in, in the society at the time, in Jesus' time, a child was at the lowest level of influence. There was nothing great about children. They really were at the bottom of the chain of society. No power, no greatness, haven't achieved anything, haven't done anything. And he holds this child up and what he effectively says is, the path to greatness doesn't start with go and do or go and be great, go and achieve, go and discover, go and build an identity for yourself, go and contribute to society. That's not where the path of greatness actually starts. What he says is the path of greatness starts by receiving the lowly and the humble, receiving people as lowly and humble as this child. Now you might ask in this moment, what does receiving lowly and humble or the least of these have to do with greatness? It seems inverted. It seems upside down. It seems disconnected. It seems like they're on different sides of the spectrum. And here is where Jesus gets the absolute crux of the issue that these disciples have not been grasping for this entire journey is that you can't receive me He's saying to them, you can't receive me, Jesus. You're not understanding who I am and you can't receive me fully because you are unwilling to receive the lowly or to be lowly yourself. He's simply saying, if you can't receive the lowly in society, you will not be able to receive me. Jesus was the lowest of the low. He was born in a stable. He was basically a peasant and he spent his life walking a dusty road towards a cross where he'd be crucified as a criminal and a fraud, where he'd be mocked and beaten. 
Jesus is saying, I am the lowest in this society. I sit lower than this child. And if you cannot receive the lowly, you will be unable to receive me. This was the issue of the disciples. They had no categories for understanding that their Messiah would be the lowest in society, that their Messiah would be the suffering servant of all. They just couldn't think that way. And Jesus goes, because you can't receive the lowly, you can't receive me. And the path to greatness starts with being able to receive me. So 2,000 years ago, the disciples were missing who Jesus really was because they could not receive the lowly. 2,000 years later, this still exists in us. About five, I think it was about five years ago, John Lennox debated Richard Dawkins it's an amazing debate. Lennox is a mathematician at Oxford, an incredibly sharp, bright man who's an apologist and is, is so gracious and full of the love of Jesus and loves Jesus. And he debates Dawkins, an atheist. And it's so interesting because the debate, they start off talking about the beauty of this world and how there's so much intricacy in it and how it's so fine-tuned that surely there's an intelligent designer. Surely there's a source. Surely there's a start. And as you look at the vastness of the universe and the, how it ever expands, that the source of all this is vast and ever expanding himself. And surely we can call that person God. And they debated that for a while. And Lennox kept having these moments though where we go and we have to keep coming back to the person of Jesus and his resurrection because there's so much evidence for it and it demands a verdict. And, and if you connect the dots from this source, this creator God, the one who always has been to this person, it tells us something about God. And there's this moment in the debate where Lennox gets incredibly frustrated. I mean, Dawkins gets incredibly frustrated with Lennox and he says, Lennox, why do you keep moving us from these glorious conversations about the cosmos and the beauty of this world and all these glorious truths to this parochial person, Jesus, this peasant man who is a blips in history? Why do you keep bringing us back to this peasant? I don't understand. It's so narrow. It's so limited. It's so insignificant. He is so insignificant. You see what's happened there? Dawkins is incapable of receiving the lowly. He's incapable of making sense of the person of Jesus. He doesn't understand the paradox that exists in Jesus. That not only is Jesus the lowly servant of all, but he is also the glorious creator of the universe. And in this very text, we see this. Because you see in verse 31, Jesus says this, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man. He gives himself the title, the son of man. You see, it's all in caps there. It's a, it's a title. And it's a title that comes out of Daniel 7, where Daniel, back in the Old Testament, centuries beforehand, prophesied of the son of man. And he had this to say, verse 13, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, they came on, they came on like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So the son of man is brought to the father God and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Daniel prophesies the glory of the Son of Man. 
and what Dawkins misses now and what the disciples missed then but later would learn is that Jesus was the creator from eternity past who made all things. And then when relationship with us and him was broken, instead of letting us spin off into obliteration and oblivion, he instead humbles himself, strips himself of his greatness and steps into human form. And he walks a dusty road of humility and obedience to the Father to a cross where he would be the lowly servant of all, of all. Every person who has ever existed if they respond to Jesus, who he is and what he's done, you will be rescued, redeemed, and saved because Jesus chose to be the lowest of the low and to serve all who would come to him in faith. And then he would be raised in glory. And that's what Daniel is talking about. The one who would inherit every kingdom, every nation, every person, every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship him and praise him and be a part of his kingdom. And all authority would be bestowed on him in victory. And so in Jesus, we see the great paradox of greatness, infinite greatness, and a lowly servant who serves all. And what does that mean for us? Well, that means that if you're investigating the claims of Christ, your first step is to receive him, to see what it is, who he is, what he's done. And for those of us who are Christ followers, what it means for us is to follow him in his service of others, to become the last and servant of all. Now, I know we struggle with that and some of you might push back and go, wait, Ian, just wait. This servant stuff, last of all, it doesn't sit well with me. I think that's because we have a funny picture of, of what's going on here. When I read, Leila has these Richard Scarry books, and in those Richard Scarry books is Lowly the Worm. And there he uses a lovely word to describe Lowly the Worm. Lowly the Worm ooches around. I mean, who uses that word? But there's Lowly the Worm ooching around the place. And he pops up in all these random spaces. I think sometimes we think to become the last of all and servant of all is to be lowly the worm, ooching around, meaningless existence. That's not what it means. What we see in the example of Jesus is that to be lowly and servant of all is to walk in humble obedience to the Father with a deep love that motivates us to serve everyone in the full spectrum from the lowly in society to the great in society. And what that practically means is that all of our resources, all of our wealth, all of our, our gifting, all of our strength, all of our might, all of our influence, all of our power, everything that God has gifted to us is not orientated towards our greatness. Rather, we orientate all of that in humble obedience to the Father and a deep love to serve everyone with it. It means that all that we have is orientated towards the good of others and the greatness of God. And yes, that will have a huge impact. It might mean that you don't gain as much influence. It might mean that you don't become as famous or great as you want to. It might mean that you do take some knocks along the way when you stop living for your own glory and start living for the greatness of God but it's worth it 
Romans 8, 17 says this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, follow him in being the last and servant of all, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's an incredible promise that we will share in the glory of Christ. In the kingdom that is to come, when it is fully established, we will share in the infinite glory of Jesus. Every other glory, every other greatness that you can achieve in this lifetime, in a thousand lifetimes, will pale in comparison in getting to share in the sliver of the glory of Jesus, to be able to experience in its fullness the glory of Jesus. That we get to be partakers in that glory. It really is beyond comprehension. And it is something that we can't just hear. It's something that we need to grasp. It's something that we need to live in and meditate on so that we're not tempted to run after lesser greatness, lesser glories. But that we orientate our entire lives to humble obedience to the Father, the service of others, trusting that we will follow Jesus through service of others into great glory. So you see the path to greatness starts with receiving the lowly because in being able to receive the lowly, we will be able to receive the humble servant Jesus. And as we walk with him in his ways and rest in his finished work in our lives, we become sons and daughters of heaven and co-heirs of the glory of Jesus. It should change the way we live our lives. It should change the way we feel about our lives. And it should change the way that we see others. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. Father, I ask that you would help us by the power of your presence and your spirit, by your spirit, to not just hear these words today, but to grasp them in such a way that our lives are transformed and changed. God, that where there is striving and effort and exhaustion and burnout as we try to build our own kingdoms and names for ourselves, we would be able to put that stuff aside and that we would be able to become the last of all and the servant of all. We would follow you, Father, humbly in obedience with a deep love for others that causes us to lay down our lives in service. Father, you held back nothing. You served all to the point of death on a cross. Father, would we hold back nothing in our love of you and our love of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.